0: Hello Prestige Heads and welcome to American Prestige. I'm Danny Bessner here as always with Derek Davison and we are here as always for the News Roundup. But before we do, I wanted to make sure everyone noticed that we are introducing a new feature this week that will be... um, I imagine, just a new regular feature, where we go through this week in history. So please check that out. Producer Jake is the one doing it. It's really fun. It's really cool. We hope you guys enjoy it. And also, please enjoy our bonus episode this week, which will be the second in a series on the history of the Republic of Vietnam. So with that out of the way, Derek, why don't we just get into the news? And why don't we start talking about the constitutional referendum in Tunisia?
1: Sure. So uh, as people presumably know, uh, Tunisian President Kais Saeed seized power essentially uh, last July. He suspended parliament, later dissolved it, dissolved his cabinet. He's been ruling by decree for several months now, uh, leading up to a, a plan to introduce a new constitution that would greatly in- increase his legal authorities rather than his extra legal authorities. That constitution, I should say, was put to a referendum on Monday, Uh, It was a staggering landslide with 94.5% voting yes. Now the catch is turnout was only 28%. So that's not actually that many Tunisians expressing support uh, for this new constitution. Pretty much all of them who had uh, turned out to vote in favor of this uh, new draft constitution were doing it, not because they necessarily agreed uh, with what President Kais uh, uh, Syed is proposing in this constitution, but because they were voting against the old political system. Uh, however, there was no kind of minimum uh, turnout standard as there sometimes is, uh, with referenda like this to to sort of make them official. Uh, so this result stands and Tunisia will be adopting a constitution that in theory, if you want to talk about sort of political theory, it transitions Tunisia from a semi-presidential to a fully presidential political system. In practice, it basically gives Saeed virtually uncheckable authority. He, there's no real path by which the new parliament whenever that is finally installed, or the judiciary uh, are able to kind of put a check on his authority. So it it largely legalizes and instantiates in law the uh, power grab that he's been undertaking for the last several months.
0: Why don't we stay in the region and talk about uh, what's been going on in Iraq, and particularly the storming of the parliament?
1: Yes. Uh, So, Wednesday, supporters of Iraqi political leader Muqtada Sadr breached Baghdad's supposedly secure green zone. They stormed into the parliament building and occupied it for a brief period of time. Now, the backstory to this, um, as you may uh, know, Iraq held... An election last October. It has ever since then been mired in the often complicated, but usually not this complicated and usually doesn't take this long. In fact, uh, this is a record now for the Iraqi political system, the process of forming a government after the election. Sadr's uh, political bloc, his list or party, if you will, Uh, emerged as the largest single group in the parliament. And so he had been leading efforts to form uh, what I think you would broadly characterize as a majority government. Uh, This would be a big change for Iraq because Iraq, since the U.S. invasion, has been run essentially on a series of national unity governments that don't get anything done, really. That kind of structure made a certain amount of sense in the wake of the U.S. invasion as you're trying to build up uh, new political institutions. But at this point, it's basically just a way for all the political grandees, the party leaders, et cetera, to get a hand in, in the pot uh, when it comes to divvying out government contracts, government jobs, all the cushy kinds of things that go along with having uh, government revenue to play around with. Uh, Sadr, as I say, has had this plan to ditch the unity system and form a majority coalition. He'd been in negotiations with Sunni parties, with Kurdish parties about doing just that. You can you know, argue about his motives. Probably he wanted more control over all those government goodies, but also there is a case to be made that at this point Iraq would be better served with a sort of, let's say, more normalized political system where you have a government and an opposition or a majority and the the minority, uh, and they they ta- they tangle with one another, and then you have elections and people sort things out, but. Last month, Sadr, uh, after having been thwarted in his efforts to form a new government uh, repeatedly by his rivals in the Shia community, uh, who have an alliance called the Coordination Framework, they'd been blocking uh, the first step of government formation, which is the election of a new president, Sadr kind of picked up his, uh, his ball and went home. Last month, he ordered his MPs to quit the parliament, which they did and he has since promised to sort of take to the streets, which Sadr has a proven ability to get a lot of people out to protest uh, if he wants to. So he's been threatening to kind of take to the streets and prevent the formation of a government under the coordination framework's leadership. Probably at this point, he's trying to force a new election. It's unclear. On Monday, the coordination framework finally nominated its own candidate uh, as prime minister, a very kind of boring, apparatchik veteran politician named Mohammed Sudani. And Wednesday's uh, uprising in Baghdad seems to be uh, Sadr's response to this basically saying, look, I'm not going to let you do this. I'm not going to let you form a government uh, on your own. I'm going to make sure that we disrupt this as much as possible or that my supporters are able to disrupt this as much as possible.
0: In a tweet, he described it as a revolution of reform and rejection of corruption, saying the message had been delivered. And the protesters have terrified the corrupt in power.
1: So that occupation of the parliament building indicates that he can make good to some degree uh, on that threat, whether he can completely block uh, the formation of a new government. I mean, there are indications that... The the Sunni parties and the Kurdish parties are negotiating with the coordination framework about forming a government legally. I mean, at this point, they have a majority. They can do what they want uh, if they're able to all kind of get on the same page. But it looks like they will have a a lot of trouble from Sadr in the form of these kinds of protests and uprisings uh, if they decide to go that route. So we'll have to wait and see what happens.
0: So let's stay in the region some more and talk about the Iran nuclear deal, which uh, it
1: doesn't look good, Derek. Uh, yeah, so this is, uh, I hate to talk about this because there's been so many ups and downs and it's just like everybody's sniping at each other and uh, nothing ever really seems to happen. But the foreign policy chief of the European Union, Josep Borrell, wrote in a piece that appeared in the Financial Times on Tuesday that he had presented, he said in the piece that he presented what sounds like... Uh, the EU's sort of best and final offer for restoring the 2015 Iran nuclear deal. The EU has been trying, has been functioning as sort of the go-between between uh, between the United States and Iran, who are the two parties that have to ultimately agree or reject a return to the deal. So if Morel's peace is to be believed, and if that's really where things stand, then all that's left, again, is for the US uh, and or the Iranians to either accept it or reject it. Iranian officials so far have been uh, somewhat noncommittal. They've welcomed his proposal, but said they have certain aspects of it they would like to discuss. Uh, the only word I've seen out of the U.S. is from the State Department, from its spokesperson, Ned Price, who said that uh, U.S. officials were reviewing Burrell's proposal. Um, I, I don't see much reason to be optimistic if if the parties were really serious about doing doing a deal, if the United States in particular uh, were serious about doing a deal, I think it would already be done. So I don't see much reason to be optimistic that there's going to be a revival of the deal. But if the EU is finally ready to tap out and say, look, this is all, this is the best we can do. There's nothing, you know, we can't do any more than this. Uh, that could bring an end to the negotiating process one way or the other. I mean, either the uh, the parties are going to agree or they're not. And then that would be pretty much the end of it. So it's unlikely this thing is going to happen. Uh I would say so. Yeah, I don't I don't see again, I mean, I, this is a deal that's been out there for the taking for so long and nobody's taking it. Um I just don't I don't know. I don't have a good feeling about uh, the possibility at this point. And and there are The longer this goes on, the more extraneous factors come into play. The Ukraine war obviously was a big one. But, you know, parts of the deal are going to sunset and, and, you know, they're going to there were there were. Date certain, you know, on on certain restrictions that the Iranians had accepted, uh, that are going to start to come off, and and you know, there's there's less and less interest, I would think, or there will be less and less interest on the part of the U.S., which has talked about doing this like longer and stronger deal, which you can't do unless you come back into the original deal, which they seem unwilling to do uh without guarantees that they can get something bigger and better on the Iranian side. The last uh, I read or the saw of, of Iranian demands was that they were still um, uh, kind of hung up on this idea of guarantees that the U.S. would not pull out of the deal in the future, which is perfectly reasonable from their perspective, but impossible for the Biden administration to agree because you can have, uh, you know, Trump part two in a couple of years and they're obviously going to pull out of the deal and there's really nothing that you can do legally to prevent that. So that's a real sticking point. And and while I've I've said on this show multiple times, there are ways to get around that you can create sort of compensation packages or some kind of, uh, you know, way to cushion the blow for the Iranians if the U.S. does pull out of the deal again. But there's been no indication that the Biden administration is willing to do that.
0: I always wonder with this one what Obama thinks in between releasing his, you know, summer reading list or whatever about his signature achievement not being,
1: <laughs> you know, re, The re, summer re- reading revivified. list is far more important than complex geopolitical negotiations. Come on, we got to know what's on his iPhone, what tunes he's listening to. We got to know what's on his Kindle, you know, all sponsored, I'm sure, by the the right companies. I, I mean, I think. I don't know. I honestly don't know what Obama thinks. Uh, for the Biden administration, I, I I've started to to feel like this entire kind of year and a half now of uh, participating at least in a in, in a you know sort of public way uh, in these talks has been all about image, basically, that there was really never that much desire to get back into the nuclear deal. But what they wanted uh, was to say to all the other parties who had felt, Maybe chapped a little bit by the Trump administration and sort of abruptly squashing the deal without consulting with anybody that, hey, look, we tried. We really tried to to get back into the deal. And it was the Iranians that that wouldn't uh, take yes for an answer. So basically. You don't care about getting back into the deal. What you care about is that the Trump administration did something that sort of isolated the U.S. within this group of you know parties to the agreement. And you want to t- flip that by pretending to, to care that, to get back into the deal. You're trying to flip that and isolate Iran as the bad actor and, and change everybody's perception. Uh, I don't know if that I think it's worked on the Europeans. It, it certainly hasn't worked on the Russians uh, or the Chinese. But uh, I think it's probably worked on the Europeans, the French, the Germans and the uh, Brits. But that's that's the only tangible change that's going to come out of this, I think. There's not going to be a return to the deal. It's just going to be that the United States has sort of patched things up with the Europeans. Thank goodness for that. Uh, so, Derek, Absolutely. what's been going on in Myanmar? Uh, so there was a report in Myanmar state media on Monday that the country's uh, ruling junta had executed four people. Two of them have been described as democracy activists. Two others allegedly involved in acts of terrorism. This is according to the junta, obviously. That's, uh, you know, take that with a grain of salt. Uh, These are the first executions that have been carried out in Myanmar since the 1980s, but they may also be the first of many more executions to come. The junta, through its courts, has sentenced over 110 people to death, since the February 2021 coup that ousted uh, Aung song su Chi's government uh, and left the military in power and that's not including the you know 2000, plus or 2,100 plus, I think at this point, who have been killed in various kind of outbreaks of conflict or massacres by the the military or police forces kind of responding to protests and other things since the junta's uh, seized power.
0: It's an act that is likely to be seen as a provocation by the population. On social media, people were outraged, tweeting things like, remember their names, don't be sad, get mad. And it really represents the state of mind of the population. Uh,
1: what makes this interesting is that the fallout, at least rhetorically, from the executions has been fairly severe. The United States had a, a very negative comment, and you know other countries, the Europeans, have have, uh, have criticized the executions. But most immediately, and 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 uh, somewhat, uh, I guess, importantly, uh, the Malaysian government, which has been sort of the one conduit for Myanmar to interact with the rest of the Association of Southeast Asian Nations, which has rejected the coup and, and hasn't, you know, fully integrated uh, the junta back into its, its membership, but at the same time hasn't been very hasn't been terribly strenuous about kind of punishing Myanmar or punishing the junta in any way or, or sanctioning them or anything like that but the Malaysian government can really condemn these executions said they'd undermined the association's plan they have like a they've laid out a plan for ending Myanmar's civil war kind of ending the various conflicts that are going on around the country and have been since the coup but that may be changing if the if Myanmar's relationship with the, the Association of Southeast Asian Nations deteriorates, then that could lead to some some serious repercussions in terms of kind of local economic, you know, even blockades, but certainly sanctions could be on the table. It remains to be seen. So far, the backlash has only been rhetorical, but, uh, you know, it, it may turn into something more serious. So we'll
0: keep an eye on that. And um, why don't we move now to uh, the Somali-Ethiopian border and Al shabaabs appearance there?
1: So this is interesting. Um, a couple uh, last week, I guess uh, I kind of lose track is because I took the weekend off. I apologize for that. Uh, Against my instructions, yes, I know, I know. Uh, last week, uh, Al shabaab attacked two Somali villages close to the Ethiopian border. What's Interesting about this, there were, I think, 15 to 20, I think 17 people was the figure I saw killed, including civilians and Ethiopian police, dozens of al fighters were also killed uh, in this fighting. There was a claim by the Ethiopians that al uh, fighters and one commander had crossed into Ethiopia, uh, into Ethiopia's Somali region. So we have to distinguish between Somalia and the Somali region of Ethiopia here. Uh, these are the borders we're talking about. Apparently to try to establish a cell in the Somali region of Ethiopia, which would be a major expansion of al-Shabaab's activities uh, geographically. The, that group, uh, which is affiliated with Al-Qaeda uh, has tended to steer clear of Ethiopia uh, or even the Ethiopian border area for many years now, uh, you know, just out of just due to the fact that Ethiopia is kind of, you know, heavily policed that border and they have peacekeepers in Somalia whose job is more or less to guard the border. It's not so much to keep the peace, but it's a very tough nut, let's say, for uh, for a group like al-Shabaab to try to crack security-wise. That said, there was another apparent clash, like major clash along the border between security forces from Ethiopia's Somali region uh, and Ash-Shabaab fighters. Uh, the, uh, an official with uh, the Somali region Ethiopia government said that uh, something like 85 Ash-Shabaab fighters had been killed in a number of, of incidents. Uh, they're claiming, they claimed on Monday that their security forces had killed over 240 Ash-Shabaab fighters since last week's raid on those two villages. So this is a, uh, I don't know what to make of this yet. I don't know what's going to become of it. Maybe nothing, but it seems like a very interesting development to have a Shabab, you know, suddenly kind of uh, really taking an interest in the border and to the extent that it's, sacrifice scores of fighters to try to establish some kind of a beachhead maybe or some kind of foothold in the border region. So I think another thing to to sort of watch, I, I don't know that it's necessarily means anything right now, but it, it could signify something, uh, you know, change in shabaab's objectives or its strategies. I don't know. Again,
0: we'll keep an eye on that. Derek, why don't we now turn to Ukraine? Um, and there as usual is a lot going on. Why don't we start with the issue of uh natural gas?
1: So the EU announced uh, on Tuesday a new natural gas rationing deal uh, that's supposed to try to get EU nations through the winter, assuming a complete cutoff of Russian natural gas to Europe. Now, the, the deal calls for, uh, first and foremost, a, a cutback of about 15% in European natural gas usage uh, between August and March Uh, It allows member states to take their own initiative and kind of implement their own voluntary cutbacks. Uh, But if that doesn't do the trick, then there are mandatory steps outlined in this rationing deal that would take effect. The announcement came just a day after Gazprom, the Russian natural gas giant, announced that effective Wednesday, and it actually did do this, so it's its not just an announcement, they did it. Uh, on Wednesday, they have the amount of natural gas flowing through the Nord Stream 1 pipeline. Now, that they had already taken... Gas levels in the Nord Stream 1 down to a, about 40% of capacity. So, this means they're now operating about 20% of capacity. So, uh, still not a full shutoff, but close enough that I think, you know, European governments at this point have a reason to be concerned. People need to heat their homes and, in winter. They need gas for a variety of reasons, and uh, they may not be getting very much, if any, from russia uh, which is you know ben has filled the the majority of uh european gas needs for some time now uh the german government accused russia of engaging in what it called a power play uh related to the war in ukraine gazprom re- responded by saying you know this has nothing to do with ukraine it's all about technical issues but i think probably the politics are involved here um, this is you know uh, obviously uh it's, it's Totally unacceptable for the Russian government to jerk Europe around like this, as opposed to uh, Europe jerking the Russian government around with sanctions and whatnot, which is righteous and just. So that's that's where things stand. Um, There's a lot that Europe is going to have to do in Germany in particular, apart from this gas conservation plan to try and figure out how to get through the winter with with sort of minimal disruption if this is really where things are going to be uh, in terms of Russian gas or if even the 20% that's currently flowing through Nord Stream 1 is, is cut to nothing. Uh, that's just going to make the problem worse. And there's also been uh, discussions about grain. Yes. Uh, so supposedly and this is something uh, I think we talked about last week uh, but uh, supposedly Ukrainian grain shipments are going to restart at any time like any day now they're they're set to uh, begin shipping grain from their black sea from Ukraine's black sea ports that's after Russian and Ukrainian officials signed a, a deal in Istanbul on Friday which had been had been expected to resume those shipments the deal called for the creation of a joint coordination center to oversee the shipments, to oversee protecting sea lanes in the Black Sea from mines and making sure that neither uh, side kind of takes advantage of any changes to military dispositions in the Black Sea to achieve any sort of combat edge. Uh, That center is already up and running as far as I know. uh, The Turks announced earlier this week that it was uh, set to go. Uh, and that's why, you know, the Ukraine, Ukrainian officials and UN officials are talking about an initial shipment going, you know, maybe by the end of this week, although it's a little late for that. That had been the story earlier this week, but we'll see. At, at any rate, it's sort of a day day by day thing at this point, uh, which is big. I mean, if it if the deal holds together, if this actually works, this is huge for countries that depend on. Ukrainian grain shipments and Russian grain shipments, there's some talk of uh, you know linking the two and, and trying to find ways to unlock Russian food shipments or exports as well. Really big deal for the, the global food market and for countries that are, are dependent on this grain to survive places like Lebanon, which is almost out of wheat, and uh, Egypt, other countries in the Middle East and, and Africa that rely on on exports from this region to, to feed their populations. And why don't we give an update on the fighting? And by we, I mean you. (laughs) So uh, there has been uh, a little bit of an advance. On Wednesday, Russian forces in eastern Ukraine captured, uh, I'm going to mangle this so badly and I apologize, Vuhlehirsk, uh, which is a coal-fired power plant in Donetsk. It's the second, I believe, second largest power plant in Ukraine, and it's now in Russian hands.
0: Ukraine's Soviet-era uh, Vuhlehirsk power station is the latest loss in the eastern Donbass region. It comes as President Volodymyr Zelensky said Ukraine was preparing to increase its electricity exports to the European Union to help it withstand pressure from Russia over energy supplies.
1: There are some indications, and we've talked about this sort of the conflict being somewhat frozen in Donetsk for a few weeks now as the Russians maybe were retooling and preparing for an advance, there are now indications that the Russians may be moving forces to the south, to Kherson, Oblast, Ukraine's Kherson Oblast, and and maybe the Zaporizhia Oblast, because that's where the Ukrainian military has been concentrating a lot of its efforts with this uh, swanky long-range or longer-range, I guess, Western artillery, the HIMARS systems that they've gotten from the U.S. and some, some things from the U.K. They've been targeting Kherson in particular. Uh, there's a bridge, the uh, Antonivsky Bridge, that runs over the, the Dnipro River and feeds into Kherson, Kherson City. That's been a frequent target of Ukrainian artillery. Uh, it's a critical supply artery for the Russians to to get, um, you know, men, materiel, what, what have you, into and out of Kherson City. Uh, so there does appear to be some preliminary efforts at a potential Ukrainian offensive in the South, and that may be uh, diverting Russian attention a bit from from what had been their focus on the East. So how is, from a general strategic level, the war proceeding in your perspective? Uh, I, I mean, I think you're still in a position where, uh, you know, the Russians had the upper hand. They they seized all of Luhansk province. They were on, you know, they were planning by all accounts to uh, move on the rest of Donetsk. Uh, this Ukrainian operation or the threat of a Ukrainian operation against Kherson is is interesting and it may delay uh, things in the east. But I have a hard time imagining that uh, the Ukrainians can actually undertake a, a an effective counterattack in Kherson that could drive the Russians out of there, uh, especially if there are Russian reinforcements moving in. I mean, this is uh, one of the key parts of Ukraine that if, if Russia were to uh, say, you know let's stop fighting today. they would this is one of the parts they would want to keep it permanently if they can. so they're not going to give it up without uh, a serious fight. I should mention there is renewed talk of uh, supplying, Ukraine with fighters. Uh, You may recall that this was a talk that was bandied about earlier in the conflict and sort of discarded as uh, too logistically difficult and also too risky in terms of potential escalation. But there were there's been reporting uh, I think in the Washington Post of late uh, that the u s and other Western European countries are in Western European countries excuse me are deliberating maybe sending western made fighters now the Slovak the the Slovak government uh their defense minister uh, suggested on Tuesday that Uh, Slovakia could send its MiG-29s to Ukraine. Uh, it's, it's already supposed to kind of change out those MiG-29s for US F-16s. That deal's not supposed to happen until 2024, but they could send the MiGs now and kind of rely on, um, you know, other NATO members to, to defend their airspace until the F-16s get there. So this is, this kind of talk is only going to keep building, I think. And, and we've seen the pressure to escalate. To bigger and you know kind of better and more expensive weapon systems with the, the you know the influx of these multiple rocket launch systems the himars uh, etc i think it's only going to continue to to grow uh you'll see more calls for armed drones you'll see more calls for aircraft uh and other kinds of more sophisticated weapon systems the longer this conflict goes on so uh I, I, that's that to me is the the thing to watch from from the perspective of you know, kind of being in the West and and observing this go on.
0: Why don't we briefly mention uh, President Joseph Robinette Biden's phone call with Xi?
1: Yes. So this happened just today. Uh, President Biden and President Xi held a phone call. Uh, they discussed, uh, I think Xi basically lectured Biden over Taiwan-related issues. There is a increasingly absurd debate in Washington over whether Nancy Pelosi should go to Taiwan next month. I don't know why on earth that would even be under consideration. But at the same time, there's been a lot of fear-mongering, like the Biden administration basically implying that China would shoot her plane down, which I think is uh, is pretty wild. So that was clearly, you know, part of the conversation. The call lasted about two hours. I don't, I don't, they didn't come to any kind of conclusion or anything. I don't think there's anything to really talk about in terms of developments, just that The fact that the call happened, and and given that these are uh, the two principles in the the glorious Cold War, new Cold War, it's news every time they communicate with one another. And so, you know, worth mentioning. And and, uh, hopefully they've staved off global Armageddon for another, you know, couple of months at least. Uh, So, on that note, why don't we end on a happy
0: subject? And that's the melting of the Greenland Glacier.
1: Yeah, this is cool. I mean, if you're looking for a place to to maybe put a vacation home, go swimming, you know, I, I would say the Greenland Ice Sheet is is your place. The satellite researchers and and uh, data from the U.S. Snow and Ice Data Center, which is actually a thing, I didn't know that until I, I saw this story, estimated that between... July 15th and July 17th, some 18 billion tons of water melted off of Greenland's ice sheet because temperatures were a balmy 60 degrees Fahrenheit, which is about 10 degrees warmer than Greenland ought to be at this time of year. The level of melting, I should note, actually worsened later this this month between July 20th and 23rd. Uh, the, The estimates are the ice cap lost between 8 to 10 billion tons of water per day. The situation has gotten so, like the, the ice core has gotten, uh, or the ice ice sheet, excuse me, has gotten so kind of weakened by these high temperatures that uh, there's a group called the East Greenland Ice Core Project that takes samples uh, of the Greenland ice sheet to send off then to laboratories to assess the impact of climate change. The ice is so soft that they, they haven't been able to land a plane to get the ice core samples on board that plane, so that they could be flown out uh, to conduct research on. Um, in other words, I think uh, everything's fine. We're all we're all fine. The climate's is fine. Uh, it's gonna be it's gonna be great. Totally
0: agree. So we could finally end on a happy note here, Derek. Thanks Absolutely. so much, and we'll see you all soon. Bye. Bye.